Ready for the interview And if you get a cue Live on the laptop Watch what I'm gonna do Welcome to the show Let them know we got a point of view Hey, yo Let's have a combo Say what you feel Be real, that's the motto Real talk pronto Doctor D, PhD Hit the intro Hold up, wait Gotta be social Network global Home for the locals Gotta be social Network global Home for the locals we are talking angels and earthworms today here with Lorraine Siegel. Lorraine, it's a pleasure to be back with you. There goes the book. <laughs> yes, it's the uh, print proof still. So yes, yes. So last time we talked, I can't remember if you were working on this or where, like, where were you in the process last time we chatted? Let's see. When did we talk? Was it about a year ago? I think so. Six, yeah. Well, I started this, the, it was a first twinkle in the goddess's eye in okay. 2017. And then I started really actively writing it um, well, after that. It's taken five years. So I think when we talked, I was in the final stages. I finished writing it. And then I was trying to learn, get it published and figure out all the ways to do that and uh oh my goodness what a steep learning curve i'm sure i'm sure how did you come up with the title of the book oh well <laughs> that's kind of a funny story it actually came from a therapy session in the 70s like you whoa can, yes i was with a therapist who really helped me grow up again and heal the you know the misunderstandings i had about not being good enough and being isolated and at one point, I, I can't remember the what exactly had happened, but I'd made some stupid mistake that I'd made several times before during our time together. And I said to her, but Abby, I didn't want to keep making these mistakes. I wanted to be an angel of light. And she leaned in and looked me right in the eye and said, then what would you do here on the planet with the rest of us earthworms? Hmm. <laughs> wow. That's really interesting. So when you were writing the book, that was that forefront in your mind, kind of that whole title, or did that come to you later during the process? It actually came later. I, um, I started writing the book. Um, well, I do self-guided visualizations and meditation. And one time I was talking to the goddess and this little being popped into my consciousness. He looked like a cartoon character from the 30s yeah and he had the face and body of a golden book and skinny arms with white gloves and skinny legs with black shoes and he pumped his arms up and down and said write me write me write me write me write me <laughs> so i called him bookie and um uh and i said yes finally because he wouldn't shut up but he didn't tell me what to write. So I asked the goddess and she said, thinking I'd write a book about conflict management. Um, and um, she said, no, write about your life first. So the first title of the book was Bookie Writes a Book, <laughs> right? <Yeah. laughs> which I didn't intend to keep as the title, but it was just a way of, um, you know, um, it was something to name it to get it started. Yeah, kind of a working title, right? Exactly. So tell me about the process of writing this book. Like, what were your feelings as you started and kind of what were your feelings in the middle and towards the end? Yeah, well, the first thing I did was create a virtual fire file called Bookie Gets Organized. And I started writing down all the titles, I guess you call them, little mini titles of stories that I tell friends and sweethearts and students and then i started a second list of stories i've hardly you know the names of stories i've hardly ever told anyone and then i started a second file the one bookie writes a book and started writing them up so when i was just getting started um one of the things i write about in the memoir is that i had a terrible writer's block from things that happened to me in childhood so as i started thinking about writing those voices came roaring back. I mean, I thought they were gone because I was doing really well writing my blog and not having problems writing. And the voices came in and said, who do you think you are? You don't have anything to say. You can't write a book, blah, blah, blah. And so those were the first feelings actually that I had to kind of 
deal with or overcome. Um, and then um, it was also a lot of fun because some of these stories I really enjoy telling. And so it was fun to write them down. Um, and then one of the pieces of the memoir, it's called, um, I called it, I gave it a Gothic title, College of Darkness, which yes, is I saw that. A, about being bullied and mobbed in academia. And I didn't want to write it, did not want to write it. And I waited until I'd written everything else <laughs> before I wrote it. And so there were a lot of feelings, you know, that came up then. I, I actually cried and shook through that whole section. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, I lived through it. I was able to write about it. And then I could step back and be more detached and edit it and figure out what I really needed to um, include. So um, and then when I, this is a long answer. <laughs> okay, it's about you. <laughs> when I finished writing the whole book and kind of reread it, I, I had good tears because I realized that all the things in my life that I thought were dead ends and terrible mistakes actually weren't, that they had led me to the beautiful life I have now. And that was such a sweet thing to realize. And I think it's one of the reasons I was supposed to write the book, whether it got published or not. You know, it's something about conflict that uh, in the moment of conflict, it feels this, I, I don't wanna be going through this. I don't wanna do this. But if, you know, the hindsight of is you, when, when you have the conflict, you always see where it leads you once you have it. The weird thing is how do you become how do you become cognizant of the conflict while you're in it and go and choose this will lead me to something better? Yeah, that's a really good question. I sometimes I still don't, you know. <laughs> I'm just in the middle of it, in the thick of it, and I don't see until later, oh, that's why yeah. that happened. But I think that experience helps. I mean having written this book and realized how so many things that happened to me that were awful, or I felt so stupid at the time, and they really did lead me someplace better. I think when something happens, I can think, well, I don't know what the big picture is. I don't really know what's supposed to come out of it. And it could be something amazing. Yeah, most definitely. And speaking of the College of Darkness, <laughs> I think we talked about this a little bit last time, but it's good revisiting, especially since uh, I recently saw, I, I'm curious about how you think about this, I was that less and less people are attending college, younger folks, mm -hmm. and uh, the value, I guess, add of college is being questioned. Now, you experienced it from being in academia What's your take on all this from your experience in being academia and what you're seeing now with less and less college attendance? Yeah, well, okay. I think that a, a, a true open college education is amazing because it helps you explore the world. It, te it can teach you how to think. Um, it can show you all the array of options of careers that you could go into and, and open up the world of books, which is a beautiful thing. Um, however, I think that it's become almost unaffordable for far too many people. And this is a societal problem that we're not making these opportunities available to enough people. And all the young ones who have this graduate with this huge burden of debt, it's unsustainable. And I do think that college is not for everyone, that um, we, I, I think I said this before, but we need to equally honor uh, different um, professional technical training programs and so-called vocational programs as being just as valid options and um, really support the arts more too. Yes, most definitely. Now, what role, besides the financial role, what role do you think the administrative environment plays in this into the experience of both the administrator staff and then ultimately the, the student population? Because obviously you had a very 
conflicting aspect. It's toxic. We <laughs> talked about it. What's the responsibility of this kind of environment towards making it a more, besides the affordability, but a, a, a better environment for students as well and staff? Yeah, well, some of this, I think, is invisible to students, mm. that they're, they're not seeing the kind of conflict and pressure on the, the faculty um, the, the same way. However, I think that the unconscious bias, the racism, the sexism, the homophobia, uh, the transphobia, the, you know, you name it, uh, phobia and uh, ism, um, is because that exists so strongly in many uh, colleges, the students are not getting the full education that they could if the faculty was more diverse and if the administration was supporting that diversity in both the faculty and the students more instead of what what I've seen in many in my college and I've heard of in others of simply paying lip service to it because that's what they're supposed to be doing while holding on with both hands very tightly to I'm not changing anything and you don't belong here. <laughs> Feels like it's funny like academia, especially in colleges, should be a place of a lot of progressive thoughts and expansion of the mind but it also feels like that's kind of the cover and behind the scenes it's uh it's not really happening actually <laughs> i think it is happening in certain limited ways yeah you know, there's people who are passionately committed to that who teach at colleges but i know for me it was a huge shock because i thought oh i'm gonna be a professor and i'll we'll explore all these intellectual endeavors and I'll have a cohort of colleagues who support this. And no, it was, it was quite an illusion no. shattered. <laughs> I feel like that's fair. It feels very common to me. I mean, I've been on a lot of college campuses and different things. And I feel like it's a lot like life is everybody projects a certain thing in life. I actually got into this really interesting conversation about this, Lorraine, about like, a lot of life is a projection. It's a projection. It's this hologram that you want others to see about yourself, whether it's people, whether it's institutions, whatever it is. It's like, where, how can we be less like the projection and more like the authentic self? But is that harder to do with, obviously, the components of politics and ultimately money involved? Money seems to be an extremely large factor, especially in political aspects and colleges in general. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, um, I, the, the interesting thing, this is especially from my conflict transformation perspective is some of it is what we wanna to project to others. And a lot of it is what we wanna believe about ourselves. Mm. It, it isn't just like, you know, inside what you're really like, and then you want other people to see something else. It's a lot more like, well, this is who I'm determined to be, even though I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> and don't tell me anything different about myself. <laughs> That's an interesting way of looking at it. I mean, how do <laughs> I got to back up on this? <laughs> it's more complex, but let's make this in terms of like, you're writing this book, you started to experience, you're putting a projection out of angels and earthworms. You said in the beginning, you had something like, wow, I don't know, like I'm writing a book. Like, how did you reconcile that, that feeling so that you no longer started thinking, well, I don't know if this is me, you know? Yeah, well, you know, one of the things I learned to do that I, I talk about in the memoir is to dialogue with the divine, whom I call the goddess. And um, I asked her point, I said, why do you want me to write this? And, you know, is it going to be okay? And all of these things. And um, she told me that my story was important to share, not that it was more important than other people's stories, but that it offered something to the world. And she wanted me to share it. And it wasn't about how much money I made or how many people read it, but that um, she believed in it and believed in me. And, um, you know, I've gotten, I've had so many miracles because of trusting the divine that um, 
I really listened and I, I saved that little download. I wrote it up and saved it and I read it over and over. Okay, it's not about thinking I'm special. It's just about, here's my story. I hope it's helpful to you kind of thing. And that kind of, that reframe uh, helped me a lot. So this was a this is advice to the reader or just to yourself? About no, this was line. to me. Okay, this was <laughs> advice from me to me. <laughs> you to you. How did you develop yeah. this? Um, your spirituality, or your aspect of this, as you call it, goddess. How yeah. did you develop this? Oh, that's a really excellent question. It, it I worked at it very consciously. You know, I I read somewhere that. Um, developing a relationship with the divine is it's like developing a friendship it doesn't happen automatically you have to give it time and attention and listening and speaking and meeting and all of that so that's sort of the bottom line is i i wanted it i i grew up in an atheist agnostic family with no mm. spirituality or or religion basically i mean we were nominally jewish but right. i didn't know anything about that either and um, so part of it was in therapy that my therapist had me sit in the lap of a divine woman, which is something I wanted and needed. Um, I actually took a class in channeling, I guess you'd call it, which, you know, how to dialogue, how to write my stuff and then be able to write what the divine was saying back. And um, I've been working on it for most of my adult life actually and now it's it's and some of it was with 12-step programs and working the steps in 12-step programs okay. and so it's um i meditate and pray at least a little bit every day and um i'm really conscious of how little i have control over <laughs> and that i need if i surrender it to the to the goddess to the universe whatever you would say then I don't have to spin my wheels trying to control the uncontrollable. Yeah. It's very interesting. I've had, um, as you know, a lot of people come on here. And I think no matter what we talk about, it doesn't matter the subject. Someone always brings up, I think, spirituality. And it feels um, that it's such an um, increasing force in many people's lives. What's your take on the current level of interest in spirituality in your observations in society yeah well it isn't what one thing i mean there's all kinds of levels and differences there's people who are very religious without being spiritual at all mm -hmm. and there's people who are very, very spiritual without being religious at all and then there's some people who are both and um this is silly but i'm just going to tell you that i you know i I was in Berkeley when there was the whole human potential growth movement and all these, you know, spirit guides and yeah. shamans and, and a, there's a lot of beauty and truth in all of those paths. But I actually created a, a an imaginary center called the Sicky Sweet Crystal Peace Center. Sicky <laughs> <laughs> Sweet Crystal Peace. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, people who are so out of their bodies and just kind of floating around, um, <laughs> I would say, oh, that class belongs to the Sicky Sweet Crystal Peace Center. <laughs> so, and then I do think that um, many people, whether they have a lot of money or not, are recognizing that material things aren't enough to mm. lead to a happy life. That um, you can, you know, you can have a nice house, a nice car, uh, an attractive partner, a, a, a well-paying job, and it's not necessarily going to make you happy. And I do think that with the whole shutdown with COVID, that was a moment in which a lot of people started thinking, what is it that I really want in my life? Because they had this time separate from society a little bit. Many people did, not everyone, of course, but that let them examine that. And um, it, it's interesting um, for me. I, I also, I have an eating disorder. I'm a compulsive overeater. And I, when I first started that program, 
all I wanted was to be able to eat anything I wanted and not gain weight and not have it show on my body or, or anything. Right. But I didn't understand that when I was obsessed with food, even if I looked perfect, I was a mess inside. Yeah. And I didn't have the energy to have a creative life, to have a good life, to have a fulfilling life. And I think it's something similar for people in general about spirituality that I, one of the little sections in my memoir is called being of service is the greatest joy. And I know how much joy it brings me to help people um, transform their conflicts and forgive each other. It, it, it makes me so much happier than a diamond would, <laughs> yeah. for example. And so I think a lot of people are asking that question and, and looking for how to be happier, how to have a life that's balanced, that isn't just filled with busyness and earning money. Yeah, I, I hear the same thing over and over. There's certainly some sort of awakening with that. And I also think this, that people are very wired to have a larger than themselves idea about space and time and the universe, uh, spirituality. I think since the beginning of people, this has always been a huge part of people. But I feel like people run away from it all the time. And then yeah. they always, and then something pull, it always is pulling. So for you, I mean, growing up in an atheistic or agnostic household, what, what started pulling you? Because you had nothing. You had no initial introduction about anything. What was the pull? Well, I think that I, this, I only realized this after the fact, but I have been a, a, a big reader since I could sit up and hold a book. <laughs> and I was always drawn to books with magic mm. and tra about transformation and, um, you know, wonderful adventures where they learn something and help heal a universe or yeah, do something yeah. like that. And, um, you know, I read E. Nesbitt and um, the C.S. Lewis and the Chronicles of Darnia and every book I could get my hands on that was about kids having these magic adventures. And um, I think that that was a spiritual quest. Yeah. I didn't know it at the time, but it really was. What is it about transformation that uh, really pulls or pulls at our imagination or really everybody gets excited about a transformation, whether it's physical, spiritual, socially, why does transformation do this to us? For me, I, you know, in the, in the conflict realm, I call myself, I say that I'm now, now I say conflict transformation is what mm. I'm working on. When I started in the field, it was called conflict resolution. And then it was called more conflict management. And I heard someone use the term conflict transformation. I thought, yes, that's it. That's what I do. Because I'm not trying to manage conflict or manage life or whatever that is. What I want to do is tr actually change it, transform it. So the conflict becomes compassion and understanding and better communication. And um, so the idea of taking the same basic elements and looking at them differently um, inspires me. And I wrote a, I write a vlog, as you know, and one of, I wrote a vlog post about something I used to say to, I still say to my students, which is that I have a modest goal for this class about conflict, which is to change your hearts, minds, and behavior. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, modest, but not easy. Right. And that's transformation, yeah. What is the, how do people approach conflict when you talk to them about it? Like, what's their initial ideas about conflict that um, you see? What's a common thread? Well, I'll give you some examples of photos that I use. I will ask people that question in a class and say, what's your first thought when you hear the word conflict? And the two photos I show them, one is a screaming Hitchcock style woman 
<laughs> and the other is two people hiding under a table, you know, hoping it's right. going to go away, which always makes people laugh. Um, those two images, because um, conflict has a bad rap, gets a bad rap. People think that it's something terrible. And um, what true. I, I talk about it, that conflict is a normal part of being human because people think they're doing something wrong. They think they're doing something terrible if they're in conflict. And that's not true. It's normal to have conflict. It's how you handle it that makes the difference between just a, a sticky, horrible, you know, tar pit of a mess and a swift, smooth navigation. How do you see that most people handle conflict initially um, mm -hmm. or what they're taught? How are they taught to handle conflict that you've seen? Well, the point I make is that they're not taught. You know, mm -hmm. there's no high school graduation requirement for most people. A few lucky people got to go to programs that were offered various places in, you know, facilitating or conflict management. But um, most people, uh, there's no high school graduation requirement for conflict 101 there we don't usually offer it it's not a, a a requirement for a college degree that you have to take like the general ed requirements right. and so most people they're left with either what happened in their families what they've seen a boss do or their instinctive response so one of the things i do there's actually depending who you talk to six or seven different approaches to conflict and none of them are bad, um, but we all have kind of a fallback. There's avoidance, um, you know, competition, proving that you're right. Um, there's compromise, literally splitting the different. There's collaboration and there's accommodation where you just give it to the other person. And there's a time and place for all of them. And what I teach people is to become more conscious of what your fallback approach is, and can you add on more? Um, because as I like to say, um, uh, if to a hammer, everything looks like a nail, I'm, it's not original with me. But, and then I show this photo of a toolkit with all these things in it, a hammer, a saw, a level, you know, because we really need a toolkit for managing conflict and life, I think. Where do you, so not taught, but like, what's a common place that people pick up conflict um, resolution or how to like deal with conflict? Is it, you see it as a parental thing or is it um, school, you know, friendships? What's, do people tell you what, where they, you know, learned conflict resolution and do you analyze that or you just move forward beyond that? Yeah, it, it's more for me. Um... As I said, I don't think people learn, they, they have a pattern that they follow. And um, part of what I do with people is help them see what that pattern is so right. they're not unconsciously bound by it. But what I do, especially when I'm coaching people in its simplest form, first I'm letting them tell me their story as they understand it and giving them a lot of empathy because you know these stories are tough. A lot of people have tough circumstances and there's reasons that they're mad at someone else or feeling put upon. Um, now bullying's different, but when we're talking about conflict, then I start ever so gently saying, do you think the other person sees it the same way? How would they see the same situation? And give examples if they don't, can't come up with them. Well, maybe they're thinking X instead of Y, or maybe, you know, and when they do that, they, they realize that they're not victims in the way they thought they were, that there's two people doodling along different, their own different paths that are having this impact on each other that isn't good, and they're making assumptions about it and acting on those assumptions. So how do you take the work that you do and transfer it to your own life? Well, I'm a work in progress for sure. <laughs> so, but I, you know, when the mediators ask me or people ask me for advice about how to become a better mediator, a better conflict management person, the, I, the first thing I say is do your own work because we can go a little bit beyond where we are with 
to help other people because it's always easier to see things for someone else yes. than it is for ourselves. But if we haven't done the work ourselves, I don't think we can be as helpful to others. So I do a lot of the things, I, I mean, I tell my clients to do things that came out of my own practice. And in return, as I'm teaching it to them, it reminds me that I need to do it my, myself, that I need to say, okay, you're feeling really angry here. What's, as, as Brene Brown says, um, what's the story that you're telling yourself about what they did? So I look at what that story is. I remind myself that it is a story, that it is the truth. And then I say, how might they be seeing it? So yeah. I guess I coach myself. <laughs> you know, it's this is like the second time I've talked about this in the last week about that, about coaching yourself. And it was interesting about there's some fields where maybe the, the implementation or the intervention you're providing is you're not technically allowed to have yourself to provide uh, that experience. This may be in certain clinical experiences for certain uh, molecules or things of that that may help other people. You may not have that experience yourself. So you, it's hard for you to like put yourself in that environment. But I always think it's better to have that experiential aspect to it. Like it's very difficult. You're telling someone something and hey, apply these principles but listen, I don't do that. I mean, like, oh, you, yeah. know, I, you know, like, or I can't experience that. I, I can't do that. At yeah. all. You know, it's. Well, I think that's true. And the way it's not true is I'm, I'm a highly empathic person. I'm a highly sensitive person is what the technical term for. Yeah. And I'm, I, I'm able to feel a bit of what people are feeling. And I think also because I've read so many, much science fiction and novels and yeah. uh, fantasy that I've been, you know, different universes and different <laughs> people's bodies and everything um, that I, um, I can imagine what it, I mean, don't, it doesn't mean I really know what it's like for them, sure. but I can imagine it. How would I feel if I, you know, and um, people seem to, feel my empathy that, yeah. that my compassion you mentioned science fiction i'm a huge science fiction person me too me really too. i don't think i knew this about you before <laughs> what is uh, it about it that you love so much yeah i've been reading it since i was 11 mm. and i still continue to to love it i have actually written about it in some of my blog posts what science fiction can teach us about resolving conflict etc uh, I wrote one called Empathy in the Fourth Dimension, mm. <laughs> and uh, which was based on a science fiction book. And I think, um, of course, it's people right now or in the past who were writing about science fiction. So they're trying to address issues that relate to us and applying it to some, you know, really out of the box, yeah. way out there situation. And, um, but they can create better worlds or better problem solving. <laughs> that's, that's one. And, um, oh, I wrote one about if you can change what you're imagining, then you can change what happens. Mm. And I used the example, I, I'm not saying, remembering the title exactly right, but um, I used the example of all these things that first showed up in science fiction like Dick Tracy and flip phones and then Star Trek and flip yeah. phones or um, um, 3D printers or um, uh, virtual reality. The first time I encountered all of those things was years before they were reality anywhere. So it was some mad sci-fi writer genius who said, what if la 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 and comes up with something writes a story about it and then some engineer reads it yeah and thinks no okay how would i really do that what would we need what kind of materials what kind of social environment what everything and i think that um everything's possible in science fiction and mm. it makes more things possible in reality that is awesome. The way you explained that <laughs> I like totally agree 
I want to add something else to this. Maybe this, this is just my experience with science fiction. I'm, I'm not a big reader of it, but I'm a big watcher of movies and shows. Mm-hmm. Always seems like to me that most science fiction is also very futuristic and dystopic at the same time. And that a lot of the future is not great in the science fiction. It is often a vapid wasteland or humanity has done something to the environment, things of that nature. I mean, what is it about that type of science fiction that seems to be prevalent? Well, I think dystopian visions are prevalent right now. And I do think that there's more science, written science fiction that is not like that. Okay, as so that's much the difference. As the movies. Okay, the is, movies are very is, dystopic. Yeah, very and, dystopic. And even when the movies are based on uh, books or stories, which they often are, not always, you know, but they pick the ones that are kind of dystopian visions. Right. And there's lots of there's lots of novels that that aren't like that in the same way. Uh, for, I'll, I'll tell you my my very recent favorite is called set my heart to five Mm. and um it's sort of like a cross between um well flowers for algernon in a Mm sci-fi setting and i can't think of my other example but it is the funniest commentary on current human behavior that you can imagine from the perspective of a bot who is learning how to have feelings Right. And it's kind of sad, but it's also just um, really inspiring and laugh out loud funny. And they were going to make a movie about it, supposedly, but it didn't happen. And it was too it was positive, probably. Too <laughs> positive. See, yeah, they're yeah. picking negative stuff because uh, people get enthralled know, by that. They, okay, since we're talking science fiction, these are old and they're like in between science fiction and fantasy, but there's this these, this pair of books that are called The Copper Crown and The Throne of Scone by Patricia Kennelly Morrison. And what they're about is that the Celts in ancient Britain got together with the Atlanteans and went out into outer space thousands of years ago, recreated Celtic culture with magic and high technology um, and followed the Breho laws in which women and men are completely equal. If you have a lot of money, you're responsible to make sure everyone around you is fed and clothed and has work. And so, and it's this incredible sort of magic infused space opera that has a very happy ending. And um, I still love them. <laughs> yeah, I see it's, I'd had no clue there was so much positive science fiction like happy, more utopic based science fiction and writing because all the series and movies are pretty scary. And like the future is not great. I mean, like, yes, yeah. <laughs> it's not great. Well, You know what I connect that with is I take walks in my neighborhood. I have lovely neighbors. And, but when I look at the Halloween decorations and I've, I've seen them shift over the years, they're more and more towards the scary skeletons yeah. coming out of the earth. I, there's someone around the corner from me who has two 10 foot, I'm not exaggerating, 10 foot skeletons in their front yard. It's just nuts. Oh. And there's I, I took one there was one that was like day of the dead instead with yeah. the flowers and the happy you know skulls and everything but that was the exception and, and i've really seen halloween get darker and darker and darker and darker over the years and it's kind well, of i mean sad. what do you what do you attribute that to i think there's a lot of despair mm. and there's a lot of belief in the darkness and you know, I can't watch as much. I like TV. I like watching shows. But there's more and more shows that assume that people are evil. Right. And that there's no love and connection in the world, either that or they're inane sitcoms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. And um, it's it's no fun to watch them. I'll start them. Like to give you an example, I started watching Breaking Bad. Okay. I was completely intrigued by the idea of an underpaid chemistry teacher <laughs> turning to, you know, 
manu- making drugs to, yeah because i thought yeah we gotta do something, <laughs> yeah, <know>? do something. <laughs> but then he just became as evil as everyone else right right you know and i watched another show exactly like that with completely different cast it's called the cleaning lady i don't know yeah if you- yeah i heard of it i haven't watched and- it though well, it's really well acted. She's a doctor who's an illegal, uh, not illegal, but it, she's an immigrant without papers. Mm-hmm. Um, and but by the fourth episode, she was just turning to she was becoming yeah. a criminal. She period. Yeah. And I said, no, I'm done. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, what's funny. I consider myself a very happy, easygoing person, but I feel very drawn to like very crazy sci-fi like really yeah. hardcore dark stuff i don't i'm not a dark person though it's like i'm not like that but uh i'm really drawn to space space is very interesting to me the final frontier yeah the science fiction of star space trek. all the oh. star treks and yeah. you know people are also pulled towards time travel in science mm-hmm. fiction yeah i feel like it's an underlying theme of like wanting to experience the future or the past Mm-hmm. And like having an idea of going back, changing things or living beyond your current time, you know? Yes. But, you know, Star Trek, especially Star Trek, the next generation mm-hmm. and some of the other Star Treks, Star Trek, the next generation actually models mediation in mm. some of the episodes and intercultural communication sure. and all of those things. It really does have a positive rather than a dark tone of people understanding each other of of curiosity of communicating and that is a beautiful thing that can be in science fiction yeah um, the exploration well. you know and i will say i have a dear friend and we can't recommend movies or books to each other she's a lovely person a real big you know support to me and she's always drawn to these things that are so dark i can't possibly I know, watch man. them i know i feel <laughs> it too did you have you seen the movie everything and everywhere all at once all at once yeah i saw it i love that movie it was so trippy i love stuff like that yeah i do too and there's a book that's a little bit like that called the midnight library Mm. oh it is such a beautiful example of what would it be like to live different lives you know, yeah, yeah. I, I highly recommend it. You know what's yeah. funny about that though? I feel like that happens anyways, and and you're and <laughs> if you live alone, like I've always said this that your life is an amalgamation of living several lifetimes within the same lifetime. Oh, yes. and I mean I am, you know, in my mid I'm 44, but I feel like I've had like several iterations of who I am. Like I didn't look like this not that long ago, like the hair and everything, like. There were different versions of me out there in the past and that I don't necessarily identify with anymore. Interesting. You know, my my niece sent me this big article and I I've been so busy with my book launch. I haven't gotten back to her yet, but it was talking. it, It posed the question. Do you see continuity in your throughout your whole life? Are you the same person or do you see discrete differences? in who you are and yeah. they had lots of examples and things of of both it's a book to me to me it's like but it like i can see look back at myself as a teenager as a very young adult and where i'm at now and i go well there's a thread of con of uh there's a common thread there of that person but it's, it's just a very different life yeah um yeah. so i like it's in some sense it is um different lifetimes um, yeah. oh, it's like one long day, like a really <laughs> long day. This is a really long day, <laughs> you know? really long, like really long, but short at the same time. You know, yeah. I mean, think of your life, all the stuff that you've seen and done in your life. And, you know, like I imagine, like if I met Lorraine 30 years ago, mm. would I be meeting this same person? Uh, it could be, you know, imagine that like I, we could have still talked about sci fi. <laughs> yeah, we could have. Think about the entry point that you have with people. You're meeting them at a certain entry in their book of their life. Mm-hmm. And it may be drastically different than if you met them at a different entry point. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. 
I think it's so important to for us to have compassion for all the incarnations of ourselves yeah. Yeah. and other people. I think it helps us forgive ourselves and forgive others. You know, it's, I was actually having an interesting conversation last night while bowling about this with a friend of mine. <laughs> and it was about like this conversation, but how like as we age and especially like people see their parents becoming like weird versions of themselves. When they get older, <laughs> like, I'm like, I don't want to become the weird version of myself when I get older. But it, it, it was it's a story of life. And mm-hmm. like I look at you and I always think, if I associate myself with Lorraine, I think joy. Oh, I think you come on, you have this joy. You have this, like the listeners or people who watch this, there's a warmth about you that you have. I wonder if like that was always there. I think some of it was very young. Um, but I also know that my, my p- dear parents, bless their hearts, couldn't give me what they didn't have. Yeah. And there was a lot that was missing that I needed to grow up and be happy. And I really had to learn how to reparent and kind mm. of start over and change the messages and replace the messages. Um, and it, it took a long time in therapy to do that. And yeah. with, you know, as I said, 12 step programs. So I think, um, yeah, so I hope I, I hope and pray I will I will um, age gracefully. <laughs> That's the term, right? Gracefully instead of becoming an insane altered version of yourself. <laughs> you know, you see people get rigid when they they age and they start getting older. I feel that rigidity sometimes from people, mm-hmm. this closed mindedness. Yeah. Or this um what is it what what happens? What's kind of a thing? Uh is this concept of kind of like they lose your filter. You start losing your filter hmm. and you just start saying whatever you feel like it. Cause you're like, I've done, I'm, you know, I'm too old to worry about being correct about this. And that. You know? Like, I don't oh, want to no. be like that either. Like, oh, I, no. you know, that seems well, weird to me. I, I think I read somewhere that people become more themselves as they get older. Mm, I don't know I if that's a great, more. great thing or not. <laughs> yeah. I, um, but I also think that, people, people are scared of change. And if they can learn to not be so afraid of change, they'd see change as a friend. Um, I know for me, I think curiosity is one of the main uh, characteristics I have. I'm always curious about people and I'm always chasing, oh, in when I read on my phone or the iPad, you can, you can click on a word and go to the dictionary. And I I was reading this sci-fi book where the woman swears in Spanish, you know, all these (laughs) curses and stuff. And it's like, I got to know what she's saying. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. I, it's, it's funny. I don't know why I feel very reflective about life as of late. Mm -hmm. And I, like, I think about my life and other people's lives. Like I'm looking at you and I think, okay, I've met you at this point in your life. Like what was the, the rain? You have uh, white or silver gray hair. Like what was your, what was your hair color? Like yeah. at a different juncture in life, was it brown? Was it blonde? You know, was it, it was like- dark, dark brown. Dark and for brown. a long time after, as soon as adolescence, puberty started hitting, it got really frizzy and curly. <laughs> and this was a time when the surfer look was in and I got called frizzball. Frizzball. Okay. Yeah. It's, I don't know. It's just amazing. Like when you're, you're meeting people at in their lives, you know, yeah. but I would say joy describes you for sure. No. Right? Like you have just such this, this warmth and this is kind energy. Mm. I aspire for that. I definitely aspire mm-hmm. to, to make people feel that about me. You know? Well, I will say, if you want to meet me at different ages, read my memoir, because <laughs> it is about me from when I was young until now. You know, someone asked me why I had, why I picked my whole life to write about. Right. <laughs> Instead, you know, because some people write memoirs about a far narrower period sure and i and i what i said was that the 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 main you know arc of my story is how i escaped from misery to find joy 
to find love, to find miracles. And yeah. I said, it's taken almost my whole life up till now. So that's the time frame right. I write about. <laughs> How do you want people to remember you? Well, can I read you the last paragraph of my memoir? Please do. Okay. So here's the la very last paragraph. I, and I'm not doing any spoilers when I say it has a happy ending, right? Okay. We are all miracles. I always have hope and support and love and purpose and a beautiful sustaining path forward. I cannot control what happens next, but one day at a time, I can live a life beyond my wildest imaginings. Not a fantasy of perfection, but a real, beautiful, imperfect life filled with challenges, joy, love, satisfaction, angels, earthworms, and wonder. I wish that for all of you, dear readers. I truly am a miracle, and you are too. Beautiful. How did it feel finishing that? Amazing. Yeah. 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 It's, uh, you know, I can't control what happens in the outside world with the memoir, but um, I've done it. I've really done it. And it's, it's going live on, as we're talking on October 24th, mm -hmm. 2022, and it's going live tomorrow. It's going to be available on Amazon and, you know, independent places. And um, it's out my baby, my book baby. Yeah, your book is, baby. <laughs> is out there in the world. You're putting a piece of you out there, a large mm -hmm. piece of you. Uh, out there. Congratulations, Lorraine. Thank you. And uh, thank, thank you. you for coming on again and messaging me about, you know, chatting again. I, uh, you just, it was so pleasant last time. And uh, it was wonderful. Pleasant yeah. again, as you, as I, as I thought it would be, you know. Yes. Yes. So please, if you, if you want to get my memoir, you can go to Amazon, Angels and Earthworms. It's also available through draft to digital and all these non-Amazon platforms. And it's going to be the paperbacks available now. And um, if you, and please, if, if any of your readers would like to get notices about um, events and special offers, go to bookling, as in duckling, booklingpress.com or contact me through conflictremedy.com. That works too. Fantastic. There it is. Angels and Earthworms by Lorraine Siegel. Thank you so much, Lorraine. Oh, thank you. A pleasure again, Darian. Anytime.